Isaiah 40, verse 12 through 31. Hear now the word of the Lord. Who scooped up the ocean in his two hands, or measured the sky between his thumb and little finger? Who's put all the earth's dirt in one of his baskets, weighed each mountain and hill? Who could have ever told God what to do or taught him his business? What expert could he have gone to for advice? What school would he attend to learn justice? What God do you suppose might have taught him what he knows, showed him how things work? Why the nations are but a drop in a bucket, a mere smudge on a window. Watch him sweep up the islands like so much dust off the floor. There aren't enough trees in Lebanon, nor enough animals in those vast forests to furnish adequate fuel and offerings for his worship. All the nations add up to simply nothing before him. Less than nothing is more like it, a minus. So he, who even comes close to being like God? To whom or what can you compare him? Some no-God idol? Ridiculous. It's made in a workshop, cast in bronze, given a thin veneer of gold and draped with silver filigree. Or perhaps someone will select a fine wood, olive wood, say, that won't rot. Then hire a wood carver to make a no-god, giving special care to its base so it won't tip over. Have you not been paying attention? Have you not been listening? Haven't you heard these stories all your life? Don't you understand the foundation of all things? God sits high above the earth. The people look like mere ants. He stretches out the skies like a canvas, yes, like a tent canvas to live under. He ignores what all the princes say and do. The rulers of the earth count for nothing. Princes and rulers don't amount to much, like seeds barely rooted, just sprouted. They shrivel when God blows on them, like flecks of chaff. They're gone with the wind. So, who is like me? Who holds a candle to me, says the Lord. Look at the night skies. Who do you think made all this? Who marches the army of stars out each night, counts them off, calls each by name, so magnificent, so powerful, and never overlooks a single one. Why would you ever complain, O Jacob, or whine Israel, saying, God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. For even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we all get weary. We all get worn down, worn out. And Isaiah wrote this chapter so that we wouldn't give up. And so we open your word this morning and we ask you to renew our strengths, that we would mount up on wings like eagles, that we could run and not be weary, that we could walk and not faint. And we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Well, that's a long scripture, but it's really about one thing. And that is Isaiah wants you and I to wait. To wait for the Lord. 
Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, Isaiah says. And it raises the question, why? Why does, why does God want us to wait? Why does Isaiah want us to wait? I think one obvious reason is just as human beings, like we're very terrible at waiting in general. I mean, Christmas season is a season that highlights that for me, because growing up, my, my mom was like kind of the Christmas Nazi. Um, she had very strict rules about how Christmas was to play out, and, and it was very clear no gifts were to be opened until Christmas morning, under any circumstances. Um, not Christmas Eve, not uh, if there was a good reason for them. Like if, if something could have saved a life in a present, we would not have opened it until Christ- that person would have had to be sacrificed on the altar of Christmas Day. Like that's just how it worked. Um, and so now as an adult, like I'm no better at waiting. And so this week we got one of uh, our kids' gifts, which I'm really excited about. It came in uh, this week. And, and one night after dinner, I went in because uh, there's some things I had to do to it before we start, or before Christmas Day. And so I was, you know, I was turning it on, making sure that it worked. I, uh, I had to download something for it. And then I was like, well, I should probably, you know, make sure it works and play with it a little bit. And, and uh, a few minutes later, I hear, I hear Misty, Tim, where are you? And I was playing with my children's Christmas gifts in our bedroom because I can't wait till Christmas uh, Day. Human beings, we are terrible at, at waiting. And Christmas, obviously, Isaiah, who cares, right? But spiritually, uh, this is really problematic. Isaiah 40 was written to a group of people who were, who were waiting. Um, they, had, they had been forcibly removed from their own home. They had seen war and human destruction and suffering. Their lives were like truly, truly terrible. And God through Isaiah has, has begun to say, I'm going to bring you back home, but not yet. And so you have to wait. And so you're living in exile. You're living with people that don't like you, don't respect you, don't want your good, want to destroy you. But wait for me. And I'm bringing you home. And so that's why Isaiah writes, wait for the Lord. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And the reality is all of us this morning are waiting on something. It could be something small, right? Not, you know, a Christmas present, not that important. Or it could be uh, something, something large. We're all waiting. And in the midst of waiting, Isaiah gives this long meditation, and he, he lays out very clearly, there are, two, there are two dangers that we will encounter that will make us stop waiting. And then he ends the last few verses with, I think, what's the most powerful meditation on why you should never give up on God. So two dangers, why you should wait. Uh, let's jump in. First is, is the danger of settling. The danger of, of settling. And, and a lot of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40 is all about God as being the creator of the world. And there is some meditation, which I said, like, Eugene Peterson really captures the Hebrew poetry well here, which is why I didn't want to read the ESV. I want, like, this is like, this is a motive language. And God is described as someone who can scoop up the oceans in his two hands. He can measure the entire sky between his, his thumb and his little finger. He sweeps up islands like they are, are dust. On the floor. Now, like this is figurative language. God literally doesn't have a finger and a thumb. Like that's the sky. Like this is figurative language. But Isaiah is saying, like God has this immense person, this immense power, and all of what Isaiah says builds up to this question of who is like God? To whom then will you compare God? 
That's the question. To whom then are you going to compare God? When you, you stack up who God is, who are you going to tr- what are you going to try and stack up next to him? And that's our problem is because there is nothing comparable to God, but we try. We do try to compare things to God, and we, we settle. We make home in a place that was never meant to be our home. And so again, Isaiah, he's writing to the people who are waiting. Uh, this is the people of God. Their home was in Israel. They're living in Babylon at this time. And Babylon was a culture that had idols. That's how the religion worked. And, and one thing that really offended God deeply all through the scriptures was any time you would make an idol and call it a God. And the reason for that is if God's someone who can scoop up the oceans in two hands or, you know, look at the sky between his thumb and his little finger, then, like, making God a little gold statue, is, it, it's an affront to who he is. And so he has this really, uh, I mean, Isaiah just ruthlessly mocks any, any sense of idolatry in verses 19 and 20. And I'm going to read the ESV because this captures, uh, and, and Eugene Peterson does as well, but here's how the ESV describes um, idolatry and what they would do. Isaiah writes, an idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who's in too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. And he seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And what's hap- like what happens is if you're going to build an idol, you have to build it. You have to get the right gold. You have to hire someone to do it. And Isaiah, he's mocking this process in that one, I mean, make sure you, you, know, you build an idol that won't move, like that won't fall over. Right? Make sure your God has, has good stability so that if someone bumps the table, your God doesn't fall on the ground. That would be bad. Right? And he's, he's mocking this idea that you would, you would take this grand God of all of creation and put him in a little statue. Like, this is ridiculous. And obviously, well, like most of us, we all think the same thing. We're deeply skeptical of, of pretty much any religious claims, let alone a religion that would say, here's my God, and it's this little statue. I mean, I, we have a hard enough time with some of the claims of Christianity um, that, that, that we don't do this anymore. And so I think it's easy for us to say, well, that's ridiculous. You know, who would, who would build an idol and call it um, God, and yet um, we do settle, and we do that. We do do what they're doing here, which is create another God to stack up and compare next to God. Because ultimately, what idolatry was about, it was about gaining control of their lives. Because when you're, when God's primary command to you is wait for me, you have no control. But he's like, I'm going to come. I'm going to do everything I said I'm going to do. I'm not going to do it yet. So wait for me. And we're in this position, okay, I can trust that, I can wait for that, or I can, make my own, I can make my own meaning in life. I can make my own God, my own process, my own way of gaining control over everything. And that's what we do, is we begin to, to build our meaning a lot around, around wealth, or around our kids' future, or success, or around the approval of others. And we, we create a little God. We don't make a statue, but we create something that we, we live around, we, we move around, we think about, and over time, the center of our life, our gravity of thoughts and dreams and feelings and emotions, they're not about God anymore. They're about other things. And we stop waiting for him and we wait for something else. We make a home in this world and we, we settle for the creation, for what God made, instead of the one who made it. Uh, we're, 
This is the first week in Advent, which is uh, when Christians first started thinking, you know, we need to celebrate the birth of Christ. This is a major moment. How should we celebrate it? Um, three or four hundred years after the birth of Christ, um, they, they landed on a four-week kind of season uh, right up until December 25th. And historically, the way Christians would worship in Advent is the first two weeks would, were focused primarily and, and intentionally on Christ's second coming. It wasn't all about the baby Jesus. It was, we started, the first two weeks were about the fact that he's coming again. And that, that means all of us today, Christians, we're in this position of waiting. We are between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And yet, how many of you are like me? And, and the thought of Jesus coming again, like, it didn't, it didn't animate you at all this week. Right? If I hadn't been, like, dwelling on this, the idea that Jesus is coming to, t- to take me to what is my true home... Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought that. And Christians, we lose, we, we become so enamored or so, like, this world has such amazing things to offer. We build our meaning or our construction of, of what a good life is all around things that exist within this world, and we forget the creator. We forget the God who made it, the one who scoops up the oceans in his hand, the one who's promised us he's coming back. And we stop waiting for him, and we make a home in this world. And so this Christmas, just to encourage you, don't, don't settle, be unsettled. We've called this series Coming Home because we, as Christians, we do not believe this is our home. We believe there are things deeply wrong with this place. This place is not the way that it's supposed to be. And we're not home and we are in a position as Christians waiting for Jesus to come back and make things new, make things right. So don't settle. In the midst of waiting for God, don't forget him and give up and build your life around the immediate, the now. Don't forget he's coming again. That's danger one. The second danger is the danger of of cynicism. And so the the first part of Isaiah 40, it it meditates on like the vastness of, of God's, who God is as creator. But alongside that, there's also this meditation about how insignificant we are as human beings. So in verse 22, we're told, people look like mere ants. Verse 23, princes, rulers, they're impressive to us, but not to God. God ignores what princes say and do. Rulers count for nothing. They shrivel when God blows on them, verse 23. Human beings, we are frail. We we wither away, verse 24. There's a lot of meditation on the frailty of human beings throughout Isaiah 40, which makes sense because these people had lived through war, they were in exile, they were victims of injustice, they had seen how difficult this world was, and when you see human beings suffer, when you see human beings wither away in death, it's easy to start to say, maybe that's it. The extent of life is is we we live, we die, and that's that's it. Um, This week on... Thursday morning, I flew, uh, I flew to Chicago for Thursday and Friday. My Aunt Sandy um, passed away Monday morning um, of, of Alzheimer's, and, and she'd been battling that for four years. And my Aunt Sandy, like, I, I remember her as a strong, tough woman. Like, she did not take anything from anybody um, at any time. And, and she was just a strong, strong, motherly, matriarchal-type figure. And and one of my favorite stories of her, because, you know, I just got to sit with my uncle and cousins to do the funeral this week and hear stories of her. One of my favorite stories of her was um, early in her marriage to my, my uncle, my dad's brother, Uncle Chuck, 
uh, early in their marriage, she was up on a ladder pretty high up cleaning a window on their, their house. And my Uncle Chuck, he has this very weird, uh, very Spanberg uh, sense of humor. And he comes home, and to flirt with her, he says, I'm going to shake the ladder with, you know, with her up there. And so he does. He shakes it. He gives her a scare. Uh, she climbs down from the ladder. She plops the rag in his hand and says, you're finishing the windows, and I'm not finishing, I'm not cleaning windows anymore. And she didn't for the next 50 years of her life. <laughs> she, I mean, that was, she was tough. And over the last four years, uh, I mean, she beat lung cancer. She smoked her whole life, had lung cancer, and was like, I'm, I'm still smoking. I don't care. And she just, she broke her hip. They said, you know, this is it. And she lived a couple years past that. I and mean, it was an incredibly tough, tough human being. And, and yet seeing... Uh, seeing what Alzheimer's did to her over the last four years, um, and this, this is a brutal word, but it's a word Isaiah uses, and I think it's a word we should encounter with. It, she just, her strength withered away. And this strong woman who cared and led her family in many ways for most of her life then had to be the one who was led and cared for and, and taken care of in her vulnerability. In a world where we're all going to encounter something like that, Cynicism is really easy. And right before Isaiah gives like this powerful meditation on why we should wait on God and not give up on him, this is, this is what God says through Isaiah in verse 27. And I think Eugene Peterson nails what the Hebrew is saying here. Verse 27. So why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. Right, those are the words of a cynic. And Isaiah understood in the world in which you and I live, it's going to be easy to get to that place. And it's why most of the psalms that we have are people saying to God, why have you forgotten me? Why are you listening to me? Where are you? Have you lost track of me? And Isaiah says, don't, don't give in to that. Keep waiting on the Lord. I mentioned earlier when Christians first began thinking about how do we celebrate Christ's birth? How do we, you know, Advent? And so it was, began as a four-week celebration, the first two weeks about the second coming of Christ, the second two weeks about Jesus' first coming, natural birth. The other decision they had to make was, well, when in the year do we celebrate the birth of Jesus? Because we're not sure exactly when Jesus' birthday is. Um, we don't know for a fact uh, that it was December 25th. And the earliest Christians decided we want to do it during the winter solstice. We, we want to choose the darkest time of year, like in terms of the way we experience our world, the darkest time of year when it, the sun is out the most, right? It's over, overcast. Just go outside, you know, the next few weeks and you'll understand. We're going to choose the darkest time of, of year because Jesus it was light entering into our darkness, and when Isaiah, in his first prophecy of Jesus' life, the Messiah, Isaiah 9, this is where we'll be on Christmas Eve, the first uh, uh, announcement of Jesus' own birth in Isaiah, it starts like this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And then skip down a few verses. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. The into the darkness comes light. And Isaiah says, into your cynicism must come faith, waiting on the Lord. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings 
like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Don't settle. <laughs> Don't give in to cynicism. Um, thirdly, so why? Why should we keep waiting? I was thinking about this. What, when was the time in my life I was most worn out and most rejuvenated? And I think the answer to that still is uh, when I was in my early 20s, I went with a few friends to hike the Grand Canyon. And kind of the days up to the Grand Canyon, we were, we were all, you know, we were parking or we were uh, um, camping on tin grounds. Our ent- the only meals that we ate were, were beans that we cooked over a fire in a tortilla shell. And cheese until we ran out of that. And then it was just beans and tortillas. Um, that's what we, I, that had been my meal for like five days. We hiked the Grand Canyon. It was about six miles down into the canyon was the way down, going down about five, 6,000 feet. And the next day we hiked back out, which was about a, a nine-mile hike the, the way out, um, going up 6,000 feet. Intense Arizona uh, heat. It was not a fun experience, especially when my, my diet had been beans and tortilla shells. Um, and I just, I remember getting, and I, coming out, I just thought, once I'm out, I know what's next, which is we were going to drive to my friend's uncle's house in Los Angeles, and there were a couple things there. One, there, I mean, we all already know there's in and out there. Um, that was going to be my next meal. Um, but secondly, his uncle, the house we were going to stay at, was one of the creators of the show Home Improvement. So I just assumed it's probably a nice house we're going to. And, uh, and when we got there, like, it was, it was a really nice house. There were three pools. And, and I went after having not showered for a week, having not had a real meal for a week, just eating in and out by a pool in Los Angeles. That is the most rejuvenated I've ever felt in my entire life. And <coughs> obviously, <coughs> when you compare that to Isaiah 40, it's ridiculous, unless you were sitting there at the pool eating the in and out, okay? <laughs> but the thought is human beings worn out, have fallen down, have given up, and then God like God himself meets them there. That is the image we get. And God exchanges his power and his life and his strength for our weariness and our worn downness and our suffering. And he, he makes an exchange. And I want to read those. For, I think these are the best verses maybe. I mean, I'll probably say this a lot. Like these are truly some of the best verses in all the Bible. Because don't forget, like Isaiah 40 is entirely about the incredible power of God, right? He scoops oceans up in hands. He dusts the islands like he is cleaning his own kitchen. And we're grasshoppers, we're ants. He doesn't owe us anything. And yet, here's what happens. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. For even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so God, who, um, who the nations to him are a smudge on a window, who looks at the sky between his thumb and, and little finger, he gives us his attention. He stoops. And that's ultimately what Christmas is about, is that the, pers- the God of the universe, who makes everything, who sweeps up the islands with a, a broom, gives us his own son in Jesus enters our home, which we've made a mess of, a place of war and suffering and death, 
He enters our home to say, I'm going to come back. Believe in me, trust in me, wait for me. And let me take you to where your true home is. So that you and I could have our faintness, our weariness, the fact that we want to give up. God says, Jesus, let me have that. And you have my power and you have my strength and you have my life. So this morning, what, what's wearing you down? What makes you want to give up? What makes you want to stop waiting for God? What makes you want to be cynical, to settle, to give up? That if people of Isaiah 40 had a reason to wait for the Lord, how much more reason do we have? Because we don't just have Isaiah 40 and God saying, trust me, someday I'm going to exchange your weakness for my strength. We, have, like we, have, we know that story. I mean, Jesus, at the end of his life, was so worn down after he was beaten before his own crucifixion, he actually could not carry his own cross to the place of his death. That Roman execution was so brutal, you had to carry your own cross to the place of execution. Jesus couldn't do it. He was so worn down. He was so worn out. He fell, and the man named Simon of Cyrene had to, to grab the cross and take it the rest of the way. Jesus couldn't even, he was so worn down, he couldn't even walk to his own Death And Jesus at the cross says, it is, it is finished. And what was finished in that moment was the exchange. Was Jesus had grown weary, had taken the, the, the consequences of this place that we've made, not as a home, all of our sins, all of our failures. He took them on himself. He, he wore down. He fell. He grew faint. He died so that he could come out of the grave three days later and say to us, have my strength, have my life, have my power. And so every Christmas, we come back to this place of waiting. Jesus came one time already to to make that exchange with us, and now we're waiting for him. We're waiting for him to come back and finish what he started. And so we reflect with great hope on the question that Isaiah put to his people. We, We continue to ask today as Christians, which is, have you not known, have you Not heard. The Lord is the everlasting God. He doesn't come and go. He lasts. He's the creator of all that you can see and imagine. And those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. So keep waiting. Let's pray. Father, I don't know if there's anything harder than than waiting for Jesus to come back and to take everything that's broken and and wrong and and not right in this world and to make it new. And so, Lord, we, we pray now as we reflect both on the fact Jesus has come into this world, he's entered our home to bring us home, or we reflect on that and we pray Spirit, you would make the words of Isaiah 40 not just words on a page, but you would make them true for us. That we who are weary and worn down could taste but a small glimpse of the rejuvenation and life that is to come that your son Jesus offers us through a cross. Make it real to us, Spirit, we pray. Amen.